Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning-fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So we have a very exciting founder, you know, a founder that has done it a few times. You know, the last one, you know, uh, he actually took that to 12 billion market cap. So unbelievable. And now he's on a rocket ship and we're going to be learning a lot, learning a lot about all the good stuff that we like to hear. And I'm sure that you're going to find his journey quite inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Alex Furman. So welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So originally born in the Soviet Union, and you ended up coming here to the U.S., you know, eventually. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? So, again, I was I was born born in 79 in the Soviet Union uh, and wound up leaving to come to the U.S. on the very tail end of the Jewish refugee movement out of the Soviet Union. And Honestly, the, the most striking part of that experience that, that I do a lot of reflecting on right now is that overnight, I got on a plane and I went from being a discriminated against minority and like very, very seriously discriminated against minority to now being a tall, straight white guy. And that's something that really sticks with me and I think about all the time. How old were you when you came to the U.S.? I was 11. Wow. So, I mean, obviously, you know, like you were very much aware of everything that was happening around you. So how would you say that all that experience really shaped you who you are today? Because I'm sure that dealing with that, the uncertainty, going to a new country, making new friends, you know, I'm sure that that shaped you quite a bit. Well, honestly, there is so much trauma, right? The other thing that I forgot to mention is that my mom died of cancer about three months before we got on the plane. So that combined with immigration really sent me for a loop to the point that I have very few memories of my first few years here. Wow. And obviously, you know, like going through that roller coaster of emotions, you know, especially when you ended up going to college, you know, years later, you know, you also were, you know, I guess dealing with with depression, no? Uh, And you ended up uh, dropping out. So, so. Tell us about this journey, too, because I guess, you know, they say that the past causes depression, the future causes anxiety. So I guess, how did you, you know, uh, come out, you know, of that depression and, and, and on a high note? I mean, again, this was a really rough patch in my life. Uh, I went to college 
frankly, for a lack of better uh, of, of having anything better to do. Like I, I didn't have a plan. I was floundering. And, and while I was there, I just kind of couldn't get it together. And back to my background, I grew up in a place where you didn't get psych- you didn't get psychological help, and yeah, you know, especially as a man, right? My in typically like men don't talk about their feelings. It's a very it's a very stoic culture in many ways. And again, given that my father was a single father with with, with three kids who was doing his best to support us, like I. It's really clear to me right now that I didn't get the help that I need, and I kind of floundered for years uh, before picking myself back up. It was rough. What was that breakthrough moment for you to come out of that rough patch? Well, I don't know that there was a moment. What I did have is a wonderful community uh, between my own friends and, and my parents' friends and the people I got to know. I was surrounded by incredibly inspiring, inspiring people, uh, yeah. and also incredibly supportive people. Like I, uh, for, for a bunch of that time, post dropping out of college, I was essentially almost homeless. I, I was sleeping on couches, at, uh, at friends' houses. And again, the community really like came around, supported me. I wasn't easy to support. I wasn't easy to deal with back then, but I was surrounded by both love and, and, and frankly, inspiration. And I think slowly I came out and came around. You know, one thing that is really incredible, too, is that entrepreneurship involves depression. And I don't think that many entrepreneurs talk about it. Uh, And the fact that you dealt with it, you know, before you became an entrepreneur, I think that it gives you an edge, too, no? It gives you an edge so that you get to know yourself. You get to know, you know, like that sometimes, you know, that mental you know, gear, you know, needs to be polished. Uh, and, um, and I think that founders, you know, they don't, they don't really take care much, you know, of their mental, you know, being until they hit a wall. Right. And that's why, you know, like we all, you know, have a, a dealt with depression, myself included too, you know, as, as an entrepreneur too. So I guess, I guess when, when, when it comes to that, you know, what have you learned, you know, about depression, you know, that perhaps, you know, if, if, if in the future, you know, it was, you know, there was a triggering event or something, you know, like you would be able to have that muscle to be able to, you know, overcome whatever, whatever challenge is thrown at you. Well, I think a couple of things, but first of all, to be clear, I haven't dealt with depression. This is something that's been a part of my life all my life and will continue being a part of my life. I think maybe the key difference now is that I know how to ask for help and I have a wonderful support network and a whole lot of coping mechanisms that I've developed over the years between my friends and my coworkers and, and my wife, who is like a critical support structure in this. Uh, for the most part, I'm now able to catch myself early uh, and, and don't let myself spiral out of control. But it's a, it's, a, it's a constant struggle for me and I think for a lot of people. And you're right, that's not talked about all that much, especially in this sort of like culture of, of putting heroic entrepreneurs up on the pedestal uh, that isn't really reflective of reality, in my experience. No, I mean, people read too much uh, the media outlets and they look at how glamorous it is to uh, build and scale a company. But, uh, you know, the they struggle, you know, embracing it, you know, is real. Uh, and the roller coaster of emotions too, no? So I guess in your case, Alex, you know, you ended up landing in the world of fintech. 
and you did that for about eight to nine years uh, as a software engineer. I guess, you know, like what got you into, into engineering, you know, in first place? You know, what was saying that thing, that thing that got you into it, that love for software engineering? Well, well, honestly, a combination, right? A combination of factors. I've been playing around with software, writing software since I was a kid. Uh, both my father and my mother were software, computer scientists rather than software engineers back in the Soviet Union. So, so I grew up around that sort of thing and, and I had a knack for it. But honestly, frankly, look, it was the year, late 1999, 2000. I needed a job. It, I could program. This was the dot-com boom was still going strong. And initially, it was just a way for me to make money doing what I kind of know how to do. So then, obviously, you know, you get into the world of fintech. But eventually, you know, after eight to nine years doing it, you know, you you, you were not really into it anymore. You know, you, you, you decided that it was time to shift gears. So why? Well, again, I think I, I, frankly, I had a bit of a quarter life crisis. I, in my, in the ripe old age of like 25 ish, uh, it really hit me that life is short and that we don't have that much time. And frankly, we don't know how much time we have. And that while the technical side of what I was doing was absolutely fascinating, challenging, and wonderful, at the end of the day, like moving other people's money around wasn't a passion of mine. And, and economics in general wasn't a passion of mine. So I started looking for that passion and I landed in clinical genetics and biotech uh, to basically apply, to try to apply my skills to making people be healthier. So then talk to us about this, because obviously, you know, you landed in, in biotech and uh, you were there at a company that uh, there was something that, that seemed off to you. And then that pushed you towards making a presentation at a board level. And uh, that was your push into entrepreneurship. So so walk us through those sequence of events that needed to happen. Yeah. And to be clear, at that point in time, not only was I not thinking of myself as an entrepreneur, like starting a company was kind of beyond the realm of possibilities. Like it was completely outside. It felt like... It never felt to me, I never even considered doing it myself. This was something that other people do. Uh, but I was at a, at a company, sorry, I was, I, was, I was leading engineering at a company called Navigenics, which was a wonderful idea that didn't pan out. Uh, it was a uh, perfectly, perfectly usable thing, but the business model didn't work. And when I realized that the business model didn't work and started talking about it uh, with, with key colleagues, with uh, our COO at the time, with our, with our chief scientist, we basically over time came up with an idea to tack what Navigenics was doing into, like specifically into clinical germline genetics. As and and that plan was developed to basically take to the board and and attempt to take a wonderful team of people, the funding we still had, and basically change business models to do something that that would work. And the the board didn't go for it, so 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 that didn't happen. Uh, and by the time the board didn't go for it, we were so in love with the idea that we basically resigned and decided to go for go with us on my own and to be clear on that and to be clear on that team I was kind of a junior co-founder in the sense that 
the people, the three other people I wound up starting and retail with were far more accomplished than me and far more experienced than me. And frankly, to this day, it kind of blows me away that they took me seriously. So obviously you got started, you know, with Invitae and, 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 and for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being Invitae? So Invitae is a clinical genetic information company. Uh, and to this day, a, a market leader in clinical genetics, like mo- most clinical genetic tests in the, in the fields where NVTA plays, like go to the NVTA laboratory, the data is analyzed by NVTA and the clinical report is turned around. We started with uh, diagnosing or predicting hereditary cancer syndromes and then expanded out to basically just about everything at the intersection of genetics and wellness. And obviously, you know, incredible run that you guys had there. I guess, you know, before you guys went public, what was that the journey of raising money for, for a company like Inviti? It was, it, was, it was rough. And again, we were, we were doing this in 2010, 2011, which was a terrible time to start companies. And or rather, a very difficult time to raise money. It was a, in, in many ways, it was a good time to start companies if you could. It took us about a year. We had this spreadsheet of basically all of the potential investors who could invest in Vite. And over the course of that year, as we were working on this full time and kind of eating for our savings, uh, we got towards the we got toward the end of that spreadsheet. So we got about 116 no's. And the 117th meeting we had with a venture fund called Thomas McNurry and Partners. Uh, it ended up with, 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 a, with a term sheet on a deal, and we were finally able to get going. So then, so then how did that, you know, evolve all the way um, prior to the IPO? Because, I mean, the, uh, obviously you guys did several, you know, financing cycles. So how, how did the, those financing cycles, I mean, how much did you guys raise prior to the IPO? <clears throat> and how did those financing cycles in a, evolve in parallel with the life cycles of the company do? Yeah, so the, so the initial raise was $5 million or $5.3 million. Yeah, I don't even remember the details anymore in, in, in a couple of tranches. And initially, we saw ourselves as a technology development. So we didn't think that we would have the kind of access to capital and basically the ability to uh, become a clinical player uh, to really play in the clinical space. So initially, the thought was that we're going to develop a technology and then and then find somebody else to apply that technology and take it to market. And we spent the first couple of years doing just that. Uh, so we were... Uh, we were working on making an end-to-end process from, from, from blood or saliva all the way to relevant clinical report work. And then a whole bunch of stars aligned. Uh, and as the, as the stars aligned, it became clear that like, we actually can. Uh, we, we got to this crossroads where, where we could either sell the company and we could sell the company or we could really make a go for it as a as a as an actual player in the clinical space we chose the latter uh we never thought we'd get that opportunity but we did get that opportunity it was like both scary and exciting and and we went for it hey guys so pardon the interruption here so i gotta tell you that you know for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired you don't have to be alone you know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So 
I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then let's talk about going public because obviously you guys say bring this to a rocket ship and then all of a sudden you guys decide to uh, take the company public. And, uh, and I mean, really, really incredible being able to, to do so. So how was, how was that journey like of... Uh, you know, taking this, ringing the bell, and and then all of a sudden here you are an, an immigrant, you know, and the founder of a, of a you know twelve billion dollar a company that at the peak, you know, had a twelve billion dollar valuation. Uh, it was bizarre. Uh, it was a very bizarre experience. And to be clear, like my, I, I definitely played a part in that, but it was a team effort, and, and yeah. my role in that like was important, but I would say secondary, not to sort of do my own court entirely too much, uh, but. Look, I, I mean, let me. I'll, I'll tell you that story. When, uh, when we finally got a date for when we were going to get on the plane and, and ring that bell, uh, I fell down with a pretty sig- serious case of pneumonia. Wow! Uh, and I could barely get out of bed. And then I went to my doctor and I told my doctor, "Hey, look, I have to get on this jet and fly to New York and ring the bell." And my doctor yelled at me. She started. She started telling me that like I. Like, this is a risk to my life and that, like, you, I shouldn't be getting on a plane. And I remember I I almost never yell, but I remember raising my voice back at her trying to tell her <laughs> This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is something that, like, never really happens. And I, I get a chance to do it, so I am getting on that plane. And, like, what I need from you is to prescribe anything and everything you can do to, like, de-risk a situation because I'm doing it. Uh, so she kind of shrugged her, shrugged her shoulders and prescribed me a whole bunch of things. And I did get on that plane when we were up at the balcony at the New York Stock Exchange. And my, my co-founder and CEO, Sean, was like actually physically ringing the bell. I was like holding on to the person next to me because I thought I could I, I'd fall down. So wow. that, that's- and obviously, you know, like you were not feeling at your best uh, health wise, but uh, but I'm sure that there were a lot of emotions going through your head, too. Yeah, no, it was it was surreal. It was a very very surreal experience. What was like going through your head? Dream. What were some of the thoughts that were going through your head when that uh, bell was ringing? Well, that it was it was it was actually happening, right? One thing again uh, that I'll admit to right now, I would have never admitted it to it back then. Uh, I was all chips in into starting the company, building the company, doing all the things. 
because I was in love with the idea. I was in love with the mission. I wanted to make it happen so much. But you know what? I don't know that I ever really believed that it would happen. Like I was, I was doing my best, but some combination of like my imposter syndrome and who the hell am I? And, and, and like these sorts of things don't happen to people like me. And really like getting on that plane, getting up on that balcony and, and going through the ritual made it real in a way that again, I can only describe it so weakly. It was, it was, it was a, it was, it was a surreal experience. It's crazy. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Now, now in your case, you know, basically one thing led to the next and you ended up, uh, you know, stumbling across HR, you know, as part of one of the initiatives that, um, that you were performing and, and pushing there, you know, as part of the company. And, and that ended up being, you know, a spinoff of what you're pushing today. So, so give us a, a little of a, of, a, of a sense of how did that incubation of Performica happen all the way to you seeing clear that it was time to do a spinoff and, and push this thing, you know, uh, independent. Oh, it's a long story. So, so it's like HR landed on my lap and it landed on my lap because we were in this interesting place for our company, basically struggling with hypergrowth. So the business was working, the technology was working. Again, we were planning out our IPO. But at the same time, to put things in perspective, that year we went from 20 people to just under a couple of hundred. And organizationally, we were tearing ourselves apart. We weren't prepared for a growth. Uh, decisions weren't getting made. Corporate politics were emerging. We were, everything was kind of grinding to a halt. And it scared me. It's, it, I was, I was afraid that we're basically, we're, we're about to, we're about to mess us up. And in what I thought was a temporary crisis management exercise, I wound up taking on HR and basically spinning up the, like the HR. We called it organizational development back then because I thought of it as much broader than just HR. Basically spinning up that function. And, and then I spent the next year or so managing the company out of an organizational crisis. And again, to be clear, like had somebody told me even a year ago that like I, like a Soviet war, like grumpy software engineer would wind up a chief people officer of a publicly traded biotech company, I would have laughed at them. Uh, but here we were and here I was. Uh, and uh, there's, they say, right, there's no, there's no such thing as a, as a temporary, there's, there's no such thing as a temporary solution. So what I thought was a crisis management exercise turned into the next many years of my life as we continued building the company into, again, a market leader in the clinical space and a truly global commercial presence, uh, hired thousands of people, reorganized multiple times in order to meet the challenges of the day. And it was both fascinating and incredibly rewarding. And I completely fell in love with the space. So then, so then how did you all of a sudden, you know, see clearly that the Performica needed to do a spin-off? Yeah. So yeah, maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit of a prior story. So 2016-ish and we're now publicly traded and we're out of a crisis and we're humming along. Uh, through through sustained growth at this point, I started looking for the right tools to basically enable me to do my job well. And what struck me is that all of the HR tools back then, and this is still largely true today, look at organizations through silos, right? You, the, the fundamental model is the org chart, right? It's, it's 
business units, functional teams, reporting relationships, budget owners. It's kind of it's this accounting-based view of the organization that wasn't meeting my needs. Like all of the things that I cared about at the time, or most of the things that I cared about at the time, didn't happen vertically. They happened through these networks. And I asked the team of engineers to start building me a software system that maps out those networks. And that shows me how work is getting done in real time and who is working with whom. And that turned out to be incredibly valuable to us in growing the company. Uh, a couple of years later, a year and a half later, I started playing around with turning it into a product because it was, uh, so I gave it away to a few other organizations to use. Like no strings attached for free. We didn't have the infrastructure to charge for it. But people wound up using it and that went really well. Uh, and, and we then knew that like this isn't just an internal tool. This isn't just idiosyncratic to Invite. This is a powerful tool to make organizations better across the board. And then fast forward to late 2022, where Invite really started struggling uh, through a combination of the biotech markets crashing in the public sector and basically a combination of events. Uh, we went from a $12 billion market cap to just under a, mil just under a billion. Uh, with that came a whole bunch of organizational change. And it also became clear that the side project of mine is no longer sustainable, right? We, in this new reality, we can't fund it anymore. And, and then it hit me that I'm actually having much more fun with that than I am with my day job. And that's when I basically switched to, on one hand, negotiating a spin out to take the technology and the team into an independent entity. And and then looking for a new chief people officer and, and sort of training and transitioning. So then in this case, you know, Performica becomes now a reality. You know, you become the co-founder and CEO of the business. And I guess for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of Performica and how are you guys making money? So again, we're a business-to-business -business software as a service solution. Uh, the core of Performica is what we call the org graph which is, again, this view of how work actually gets done in the organization, who is working with whom on what in real time. And that view, there's, there's actually a tremendous number of use cases. You can, uh, we have modules that help, or that help our customers identify top-performing employees that they otherwise wouldn't have known, maybe because they're quiet. We, there's a differentiated and incredibly powerful feedback and performance management solution that solves like the fundamental problem of feedback systems by knowing who to ask, by, by being able to like ask the right people the right questions at the right time based on how work is happening. And that's the business. Uh, so we, we help our customers have a real time like X-ray vision-like view of our workforce, uh, who is working with whom on what, how well. And then on top of that, we build multiple modules that, that solve specific problems from performance management to employee listening to change management and so on and so forth. And I'm sure that it hasn't been that, that hard to raise money and being a second-time founder. 
you've raised you some know, money. Yes, and... a, yes and no. So it, it certainly helped. And it certainly was much easier from the last time around. But I have a pattern here where, where 2011 was a really difficult time to, to raise capital. And like the, the very tail end of 2022, beginning of this year, was also a difficult time to raise capital. But, but, but it went well. We did well. We have a wonderful uh, team of investors on board that are like su- supportive, and, like like both incredibly supportive, but also are wonderful resources. So it wasn't as easy as you would think, uh, but but we got it done, and here we are. Now imagine that um, you were to go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Performica is fully realized. What does that world look like? Oh look! So here, let me big question, and, I, and, I, and I'll start from the top. So, so, so look, uh, we all know that, or or at least we think we know that, for most businesses out there, people are a greatest asset. Certainly, the most expensive asset in most cases, right? But most companies spend up upward towards seventy five percent of their budget on either direct or indirect people expenses, uh, and. So people people are incredibly important, but and, and and we all have the goal of being people centric and how we run our businesses. Again, a stated goal of people being people centric and how we run our businesses. But 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 we think of our businesses again the way accountants do, but like through these like verticals and silos and budget owners that don't like that. That's not how work gets done. That's not how innovative work gets done. Like companies don't actually work that. And this leads us to this fascinating place where, for example, like if I were to sell you a T-shirt, by the time you're seeing my ad, I'm talking to you in a hyper-personalized way. I know a lot about you. And I'm tailoring my communication style, my value proposition to you very, very directly. But if you think about how organizations, and especially large organizations, talk to our employees, uh, we do this through like all company and departmental memos that nobody reads like stale internet sites that nobody goes to. And I know nobody goes to because I was responsible for internet site. Uh, all hands meetings that are actually effective, but that we stuff too much information to and nobody really retains anything. And, and if you think about it, going back to my uh, t-shirt analogy, we're hyper-personalized. We're very sophisticated when we sell each other $20 things we don't need. But when we talk to our employees who are, whose value to us over the course of a lifetime is easily in the seven figures for high performers. We basically do the equivalent of spam in the mail and ads in the yellow pages. And then we're surprised that people don't understand how their work fits into the mission and that they become disengaged and that corporate dysfunction results. And we're, we're, because we're not like, we're not actually people centric and we're, we're, and, and what Performica enables, again, through understanding how people actually work, how people actually communicate, like for real, it allows us to be truly people-centric in, our, in how we communicate with people and how we think about uh, promotions, leadership training, uh, succession planning, career pathing, all of these things. And a truly human-centric view of the org enables all of that. And, and ultimately, at the end of the day, like the, the tragedy of, of, or one of the tragedies of business is that most companies are good companies. Most management teams are full of great people trying to do good things. But 
it doesn't reach the individual employees. And so, so, so the people doing the work often feel like cogs in this machine and are stuck in office politics and their incentives are misaligned. And, and we can fix all that. And we can fix all that. And in turn, the many, many hours we spend working, like I spend more time at work than I do with my wife and kids, not to mention my friends. And we can, we can make that better. And we could, at the end of the day, make people happier and happier people are more productive and more productive people come up with innovative products and technologies. And, and it, there's, a virtuous, there's, there's a virtuous cycle to be created here. And truly understanding how people work together like, is the key, I believe, strongly, is the key to unlocking that virtuous cycle. I love that. So now... I've been asking you for the future here, but I want to ask you about the past and doing it with a lens of reflection. So let's say I put you into a time machine, Alex, and I bring you back in time to that moment where, you know, you were thinking about maybe like branching off and entering the venture world and, and doing Invitaian. And you had the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self right before you were about to give that resignation letter. And let's say you had the opportunity of whispering to your ear, to that younger self here, and giving that younger self, that younger Alex, one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I think it would have to do with, oh yeah, yeah, no, I, I know exactly what the answer is. So what I would tell my younger self is to spend like do the work through a combination of, of therapy and training and reflecting and thinking and basically flip the way I operated from being driven by anxiety and fear and imposter syndrome and, 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 and not being good enough uh, to working from a place of inspiration. The thing is that, that, I spent years, decades of my life being mostly anxiety driven and, and, and mostly most of the things I was doing were in response to my, my inferiority complex and, and some, some vision of the perfect self. I was, I was completely unrealistic and that, that I would never become. And I was kind of bouncing around between trying to reach a completely unreachable ideal of like the perfect Alex that doesn't exist and can't exist and feeling like a complete and utter failure. And me up until a certain point, it certainly gave me energy uh, and, and it made me productive, but it made me productive in a frenetic and, and painful way that then translated to my teammates, to our employees, to my family, uh, to my own sort of lack of sleep. And over time and with a lot of help, I learned to not perfectly, not completely, but mostly flip that to work from a place of inspiration. And had I done that earlier, I would have done better. The people around me would have been happier. I would have been less miserable. I, I wish I learned that sooner. And it took almost failing. I was, I was this close to burning out and honestly probably getting fired by the time I figured this out. And it, like, if there was a magic wand, and if I could push that moment, pull that moment earlier in my life, this, things, things, things would have gotten better for me, but also for, for people around. Well, I love it, Alex. Well, thank you so much 
for being on the DealMaker Show. And before we wrap it up, I just want to ask you, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hello? Uh, Alex at Performica.com. Uh, send me an email. I I am very reachable and, and, and very responsive. Well, easy enough. Well, Alex, thank you so much. It has been such an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Alejandro. It's been a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.